Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, February 25th, and Sunday, February 26, 2023. Uh, we have a few anniversaries on February 24th, 1525, uh, in a battle outside the northern Italian city of Pavia. Uh, a besieging French army under King Francis I was so thoroughly defeated by a Habsburg relief force that Francis himself was taken prisoner. His capture led directly to the end of the 1521 to 1526 Italian War, which had begun over Charles V's election as Holy Roman Emperor in 1520, and Pope Leo X's decision to switch alliances from Francis to Charles, Leo having decided that the Emperor would be a more useful partner in his spiritual battle against Martin Luther. Uh, Francis spent the rest of the war in captivity, first in Genoa, later in a series of Spanish cities before he and Charles signed the Treaty of Madrid in 1526, ending the war on terms favorable to the Habsburgs. Uh, on February 24th, 1739, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Karnal, the Iranian warlord and conqueror Nadir Shah uh, invaded northern India uh, and faced off against the uh, clearly at this point in decline Mughal Empire. Uh, Nadir was able to thoroughly outmaneuver the Mughals such that uh, he basically was able to go around their army and get to Delhi, a huge tactical blunder uh, on the part of the Mughals, who then uh, came out and tried to uh, engage him a little bit. Uh, Nader took the opportunity to deliver a crushing defeat uh, at the Battle of Karnal uh, that wound up uh, prompting Mughal uh, ruler Muhammad Shah to surrender. Uh, Nader Shah and his men continued on to Delhi, uh, where they wound up participating or perpetrating, I guess, a massacre that is one of the most notorious in world history. Uh, that is not the subject of uh, anything we're doing today, but just a preview of things to come, perhaps. On February 25th, 628, Sasanian nobles overthrew Emperor Khosrow II in favor of his son, Kavad II, who promptly had his brothers and his father executed. Khosrow was on the verge of losing the 602 to 628 war against the Byzantine Empire. Uh, this war had begun very promisingly for the Sasanians, but fell apart, beginning with Khosrow's ill-advised 626 siege of Constantinople. Uh, one of Kavad's first actions as emperor was to make peace with Byzantine Emperor Heraclius after which uh, his brutality toward the rest of his family plunged the Sasanian Empire into a civil war from which it never fully recovered. Uh, on February 25th, 1943, this is the anniversary uh, of the end of the Battle of Kasserine Pass, a World War II engagement uh, in central Tunisia. Uh, it's uh, uh, There's a lot of maneuvering here, and like any modern battle, uh, it's a bit difficult to follow. I do have a piece up at the website if you want to read about it. Uh, it was it ended in an Axis victory, but a tactical victory and maybe a strategic uh, defeat, unfortunately, for the Axis. I guess, unfortunately, for why am I saying, unfortunately, for the Axis. They had it coming. Uh, but uh, the Allies, and particularly the U.S., this is one of their first major engagements, certainly in North Africa against the Axis. And the U.S. Army learned a great deal from this battle. Uh, in particular, it learned that many uh, of its commanders were not very good. And so it replaced uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who was the overall commander of U.S. forces in the World War II, uh, at least in the European theater, replaced many of his commanders who had uh, blundered their way through this battle, and it all wound up uh, making Kesserine Pass one of the Axis 
last victories uh, in North Africa. From this point on, really, the Allies turned the tables uh, and were on the offensive for the rest of that campaign, especially in Tunisia, but, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, elsewhere as well. Uh, on February 26, 1815, Napoleon Bonaparte escaped his exile on the island of Elba in a bid to return to France and restore his empire. The erstwhile emperor entered Paris on March 20th, chasing off the just-enthroned Bourbon king, uh, Louis XVIII, uh, and beginning the Hundred Days, his brief revival-slash-reunion tour, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Napoleon's attempt at a second act came to an end on June 18th, the Battle, Battle of Waterloo, uh, in which the British and Prussian armies won a decisive victory. He withdrew to Paris to find that the city had already turned against him and abdicated on June 22nd. Uh, his second exile on the more remote island of St. Helena would prove permanent. Uh, on to the news. In the Middle East uh, and in Yemen, AFP is reporting that at least four Yemeni soldiers were killed and an unspecified number wounded on Saturday in some sort of clash with Houthi rebel fighters in Marib province. Uh, these sorts of incidents are not uncommon, though there is always a risk that one of them could spark a return, return to full-scale war. Uh, government and rebel forces have so far managed to avoid escalation in the months since the Yemeni ceasefire expired uh, in October. On the plus side, a commercial cargo ship docked at Yemen's largest port, Hudaydah, on Saturday. This otherwise mundane occurrence is not so mundane in this situation in that it's the first time something like this has happened there since 2016. To the extent that any cargo ships have been able to get through the Saudi blockade in that time, the United Nations screening process has limited their shipments to basic goods like food and fuel. The decision to allow a general cargo ship with general cargo, maybe more than just the one, uh, who knows, to enter Hudaydah data is being characterized as a gesture meant to improve the prospects for peace talks. Uh, this development seems well-timed. Uh, only a few days ago, the Quincy Institute's Anel Shiline argued in a new policy brief that restrictions on imports into Hudaydah were threatening those very same talks. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs from her piece. Rather than the War Powers Act complicating current or future negotiations, the Biden administration should be more focused on the much more serious threat to negotiations imposed by import restrictions, especially if the Houthis decide to reinitiate trans-border violence to try to force the Saudis and IRG to allow imports. Yemenis continue to face restrictions on the movement of people and goods into the territory the Houthis control, specifically through Sana'a Airport and the port of Hodeidah. The truce loosened but did not lift restrictions on imports and flights imposed by Saudi Arabia and the IRG, that's the uh, Yemeni government. Uh, although the truce in agreement addressed key Houthi concerns, the effects of the restrictions persist, which may eventually push the Houthis to return to violence regardless of U.S. support for diplomacy. Uh, so... Uh, well-timed, I would say, to, to allow this ship to come in, and hopefully uh, this will continue. In Israel-Palestine, uh, there was a situation in the West Bank on Sunday that uh, really, I was going to say it was a troubling weekend, but I think uh, it, that would undersell uh, just how serious things seem to have gotten. On Sunday morning, a Palestinian attacker gunned down two Israelis in or near the town of Hawara, which is located uh, near the West Bank city of Nablus. Uh, in response... 
A horde of Israeli settlers descended on Hawara late Sunday and rampaged through the town and surrounding villages in what could probably be best described as a pogrom. According to Haaretz, which ran a live file of everything that was going on, Israeli authorities now say that they've gotten control of the situation, although I would say uh, that should be considered unconfirmed at this point. Uh, Witness reports, which uh, I've sort of gathered from Twitter, so again, I would consider them unconfirmed, suggest that Israeli security forces permitted or even enabled the settler violence, which is certainly believable given the relationship between the security forces and the settler movement. Uh, It's too soon to assess the damage, uh, but at least one Palestinian has been killed in all of this violence uh, and dozens wounded. So uh, hopefully this is uh, the end of it, at least for now. Uh, but uh, we will have to wait and see. Uh, In what should probably qualify as a bit of morbid irony, Sunday's violence took place as Israeli and Palestinian representatives were in the Jordanian city of Aqaba discussing ways to lower the temperature in the West Bank. I doubt anything that was said there still applies following what happened in Huara, but it may be worth noting that the Israeli delegates agreed to a four-month moratorium on new settlement construction and a six-month moratorium on retroactively legalizing West Bank settlers outposts. Both of those commitments were almost immediately rebuked by Israeli finance minister slash settlements manager Bezalel Smotrik and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So it uh, looks like they really accomplished nothing at Aqaba, uh, which again would have probably been uh, wiped out by what happened in Huara anyway. Uh, On to Asia and Pakistan. At least five people were killed and 16 more wounded in a bombing in the city of Barhan in Pakistan's Baluchistan province on Sunday. There's no indication as to responsibility. Baluchistan frequently sees attacks from separatists, Baluch separatists, as well as Islamist militants like the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, In Sri Lanka, protest organized by that country's main opposition party, the National People's Power Party, flared into violence in Colombo late Sunday when police brought out the tear gas and water cannons. At least 15 people were wounded. The party organized the demonstration after the Sri Lankan finance ministry announced that it would not be able to allocate funds for local elections that were scheduled for March 9th, forcing election authorities to postpone the voting. Sri Lanka is mostly broke, pending a still-under-negotiation $2.9 billion international monetary fund bailout. The IMF is waiting for Sri Lanka's creditors to agree on a debt restructuring plan, with China apparently the biggest remaining holdout. In Nepal, uh, and I apologize up front for butchering any names here, which I probably will do, uh, but Nepalese Prime Minister Pushpa Kamal Dahal may be in danger of losing his coalition after announcing that he will support the opposition Nepali Congress Party's nominee Ramchandra Paudel in next month's presidential election. Dahal's Communist Party of Nepal Maoist Center and Nepali Congress Uh, have a fairly close historical relationship, uh, even though the latter did not join his coalition uh, when it came together in late December. However, in choosing to back Powdell, Dahal appears to have irritated his largest coalition partner, the Communist Party of Nepal Unified Marxist-Leninist, which has nominated its own own candidate for the presidential vote. On Saturday, four cabinet ministers, including Deputy Prime Minister Rajendra Prasad Lingden, resigned from Dahal 
Nepal's government. There has been no official announcement that any parties have quit the coalition, so at this point, it's impossible to say how tenuous Dahal's position is. The Nepalese presidency is constitutionally quite limited in power, but presidents can take on a more prominent role during times of political instability, like, say, when a coalition is fracturing and the government might be in danger of losing a confidence vote in parliament. So uh, we'll have to see what happens here. Uh, in China, after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken took to the Sunday news programs last week to warn of indications that the Chinese government was planning to send weapons to Russia for use in Ukraine, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and CIA Director William Burns hit a couple of those same programs this Sunday to say that there's no evidence the Chinese leaders have decided to take that step. Okay, well, fair enough. Uh, Burns, in fairness, did say that he's confident that they're thinking about it. So, okay, uh, definitely you should be scared. Uh, Sunday's comments came after President Joe Biden said on Friday that he doesn't think Beijing will decide ultimately to provide Russia with arms. So I guess the upshot is that China might not do this, but then again, they might. I'm glad we've managed to narrow that down. Now, Burns also says that Chinese President Xi Jinping has ordered his military to be prepared to invade Taiwan by 2027. But he added the CIA's judgment is that Xi and Chinese military leaders are beginning to doubt whether they could pull such an invasion off, given how rocky Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been. I have no idea how they could know either of these things, uh, but I would say the news that the U.S. government thinks China is preparing to go to war in 2027, which could mean that the U.S. is also preparing to go to war in 2027, it remains to be seen, uh, is worth noting. Uh, in Africa and Tunisia, France 24 has a report on a rise in the mistreatment of sub-Saharan Africans by Tunisian authorities. I'll read you just a couple of paragraphs here. Tunisian law enforcement has launched a wave of repression against the country's sub-Saharan African population, carrying out random identity checks and sometimes violently arresting them, leaving their children abandoned and offering no access to any kind of legal support. Xenophobic and racist sentiments have also been circulating widely on Tunisian social media, a toxic climate that recent statements by the Tunisian president only exacerbated. Tunisian police in a number of cities carried out a campaign against the migrant community, arresting and detaining around 300 people from sub-Saharan Africa, including women and children, between February 14th and February 16th. Uh, in terms of, and this is me again, in terms of the comments from Tunisian President Kais Saeed, he tossed fuel on the fire a few days ago when he opined during a meeting of his security council that, quote, uh, the undeclared goal of the successive waves of illegal immigration is to consider Tunisia a purely African country that has no affiliation to the Arab and Islamic nations, end quote. This is a paranoid delusion, to say the least. But Saeed repeated his comments a couple of days later while hilariously insisting that he wasn't being racist. His remarks prompted hundreds of people in Tunis to protest in support of immigrants on Saturday. With Tunisia's economy in tatters and his political reforms basically shelving Tunisian democracy in favor of something closer to a dictatorship, uh, proving increasingly unpopular, Saeed, like many authoritarians, ha has turned to xenophobia as a way to maintain some public support. 
in Nigeria. The voting is over in Saturday's Nigerian general election, though in some cases uh, that voting actually stretched through Sunday due to some apparently severe logistical breakdowns. Results could be released in the next few days. Uh, Initial hopes that they would be available by Sunday night were dashed due to the aforementioned logistical problems. Uh, The election seems to have proceeded without any major violence, though there were reports of relatively minor incidents at a number of polling places. In Cameroon, a bomb blast left at least 19 people wounded during a racing competition in the Cameroonian city of Buea on Saturday. Uh, Nine competitors were injured, along with 10 spectators. Buea is the capital of Cameroon's southwest region, which is one of two predominantly English-speaking regions in which Anglophone separatist militants are active. One such militant group, the Ambazonia Defense Forces, claimed responsibility for the attack, but said that it had meant to target Cameroonian security forces and regretted that was the word they used, regret, uh, that civilians were injured. In Europe, in Belarus, Belarusian uh, partisans uh, apparently blew up a Russian plane at Belarus's uh, Machulishchi Air Base. I'm probably mangling that, sorry, uh, on Sunday. Uh, there's no confirmation of this, let alone any verified details about what happened. Uh, but media outlets connected with the Belarusian opposition are claiming that the aircraft was a, a Beriev A 50 reconnaissance plane. It's possible the plane was being used in Ukraine, though that's speculation. And again, there's really no confirmation that any of this actually happened. So, uh, I don't want to take the speculation uh, about the thing that I don't know really happened uh, too far. In Ukraine, Wagner Group boss Yevgeny Prigozhin claimed on Saturday that his forces had captured a village called Yahidna or Yahidne uh, that lies just north of Bakhmut. Uh, the Ukrainian military is insisting that that same village remains under their control. Uh, Wagner apparently seized uh, a nearby village called Berkhivka. Uh, just a few days ago, so it, it seems stands to reason that they would be uh, on the move at least. Uh, Russian forces seem to be trying to encircle Bakhmut now rather than making any more direct attacks against it, which has once again raised questions about whether the Ukrainians should withdraw from the city to avoid being surrounded. Uh, in Poland, the oil an oil refinery firm called PKN Orlen uh, says that Poland has been cut off from Russian oil. Uh, the company's CEO announced as much on Saturday, which coincidentally or not, uh, happens to be one day after Polish tanks began arriving in Ukraine. Poland was getting about 10% of its oil imports from Russia via pipeline. These deliveries were left untouched when the European Union banned seaborne Russian oil imports last year. Uh, But at that level, it shouldn't be terribly difficult for Polish officials to find alternative suppliers. Uh, In the Americas, in Mexico, tens of thousands of people are estimated to have turned out in Mexico City's Zocalo Square on Sunday to demonstrate against President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's plan to slim down uh, the National Electoral Institute, or INE. Uh, AMLO, who's made a point of cutting what he views as wasteful government spending, says that he can save $150 million per year by slimming the INE down. Uh, But his opponents, both in Mexico and the U.S., have accused him of trying to undermine the institution charged with ensuring the legitimacy of Mexican elections, uh, either in order to serve his own political aims moving forward or 
or and or, I guess it could be both, in retribution for his loss in the 2006 presidential election, which is a defeat that he maintains was due to voting irregularities. Uh, I'm not sure that he would be holding a grudge still, but who knows. Uh, The Mexican Congress has already passed a law under which the INE will see staffing and budget levels cut, but that law was quickly challenged in court and could well be ruled unconstitutional. Uh, And finally, in the United States, there's a piece of responsible statecraft from Transparency International's Colby Goodman that discusses the use of offsets, which in some cases may amount to out-and-out bribes uh, in the arms business. Uh, He uses the example of U.S. sales to the UAE here. Uh, I'll just read you a couple of paragraphs. The United States continues to dominate arms sales to the UAE, but it faces competition from major players like China and European countries, as well as the growing defense production capabilities of countries like Turkey and Israel. Defense companies often rely on offsets to make their proposed arms sales more attractive to foreign buyers. Offset packages are essentially the selling company's promises to invest in the buyer country's defense industry, which is direct o- are known as direct offsets, or broader economy, which are known as indirect offsets. Uh, U.S. defense companies regularly agree to offset packages worth billions of dollars each year. Uh, in 2019, U.S. defense contractors reported entering into 31 new offset agreements with 12 countries valued at $8.2 billion, according to the U.S. Department of Commerce. The value of these agreements often equaled more than half the total value of the arms deal. Some of the common types of U.S. company indirect offsets include agreements to purchase items from the procuring country, subcontract with their businesses, transfer desirable technologies, or provide credit assistance. Uh, at the 2019 IDEX, that's the, the UAE's arms conference, uh, The UAE announced a new offset policy for their arms purchases, which requires defense companies to include offsets for contracts at $10 million or more. Unlike some previous policies, this one focuses more on offsets to areas outside the defense sector, indirect offsets, including infrastructure, food and water security, and other strategic sectors. The policy encourages defense companies to use cash payments to satisfy offset requirements. Uh, The UAE has made made it policy not to release any information publicly about its offsets agreements. Uh, This is me again. Needless to say, it's pretty easy for offsets that are made up as as cash payments uh, to wind up somewhere other uh, than where they're ostensibly supposed to go, like maybe somebody's bank account uh, or uh, who knows. uh, Goodman's piece goes into many of the potential risks. Uh, Sometimes it boomerangs back in the form of lobbying money uh, that these countries pay to firms in D.C. Uh, Sometimes it winds up, uh, well, there's all sorts of things. I would recommend that you click through and read the piece. Uh, all kinds of lovely scenarios ensue when you uh, you make these payments to places like the Emirates or uh, some other authoritarian countries out there. Uh, on that note, that's all for us tonight. Uh, I want to thank uh, all of you for listening and or reading, listening to and or reading the newsletter. Uh, and thanks to those of you who are subscribers, especially those of you who are paid foreign exchanges subscribers. Uh, if you have not made the decision to become a paid foreign exchange subscriber, please consider it. Uh, it makes everything else possible. Uh, everything I do here depends on the support of paid subscribers. So thank you again. Uh, and until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.